Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at IKEA-USA.com slash circular. Visit IKEA-USA.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Victoria's Prime Ministers. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rats Factory, all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. It's good to be back. It is. We've had uh, a goodly time off. Uh, I went on holiday. I've had a new job. It's uh, uh, But we're going to go back in time. Mm. From last time, we did two episodes for her biography, which is essentially her as Victoria, the woman, mm. her life. Now we're looking at her prime ministers, but also the events. Yes, because it's too much to cram in, because we've had diaries. So... We're going to do this by administration, um, i.e. each government, okay, because some of the Prime Ministers are there more than once. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, we will start at the beginning with Victoria's first Prime Minister. Viscount Melbourne! William Lamb, the second Viscount uh, Melbourne, was born in 1779 into an aristocratic Whig family. Melbourne in Australia is named after him. Oh, of course, yeah. Um Lamb, Melbourne, was married to Lady Caroline Ponsonby, who caused a scandal from 1812 by having an affair with the poet Lord Byron. Really? Indeed. She was the one who actually coined the term for him mad, bad and dangerous to know. Really? That's brilliant. She initially rejected him, but then he just came after even more, and then she fell crazily in love with him, to the point that she actually got into a bit of an obsessive stalker. So even after Byron had broken it off, she was still Mm. pursuing him and imitating him in her, his writing and following him and was writing he, poems. Was he a Lakeland one? Lakeland poet? No, Wordsworth Coleridge. Oh, okay. The right. late ones. But he was a romantic poet of that period. Um, she kept on doing it until he wrote quite a hateful poem called Remember Thee. <laughs> <laughs> Revenge is only he knows how. <laughs> um, Melbourne was originally uh, Prime Minister in 1834 under William IV. Mm-hmm. He was also the last Prime Minister to, to be dismissed by the King for no reason other than that the king was fed up with him. William the Fourth, the penguin? No, that's William the Third. William the Third. Oh, William Fourth, pineapple head. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> William Rufus with the shoes. Yeah, William shoes. <laughs> he's quite a charming man, still quite handsome, even though he's 58 years old when Victoria yeah. comes to the throne in 1837. Well-bred aristocrat, very easygoing, a sort of a lounge lizard <laughs> of a man. And uh, he had four precepts for a successful life. Fear God, honour the king, obey your parents brush your teeth <laughs> <laughs> that's good I like that I mean, I... 
And he made a very good first impression on Victoria. Um, 20th of June, 1837, her first meeting with him. At nine came Lord Melbourne. I liked him very much and feel confidence in him. He is a very straightforward, honest, clever and good man. There is no end to the amusing anecdotes and stories Lord Melbourne tells, and he tells them all in such an amusing, funny way. With lovely teeth. With lovely teeth. The great thing about this is that essentially they just spend most of their time sitting around and having chats about stuff. Why is that? Because she's too immature, does he think? Or Well, she's only 18, yeah. of course, when she comes to the throne. She's very naive about the world, yeah. politics, but the world generally. And Melbourne quite likes this sort of role, just sort of tutoring her and Bouncing ideas laying off all his anecdotes. Oh, right. So they spend a lot of time just sitting about chatting, and Victoria writes it all down in her diary. Easy gig, I could do that. So these are some of the habits that she notes in Lord Melbourne. Yep. He's very absent when in company, often, and talks to himself every now and then. Loud enough to be heard, but never loud enough to be understood. I am now from habit quite accustomed to it, but at first I turned round sometimes thinking he was talking to me. That's a bit annoying. Yeah, so he's just sort of mumbling to himself (laughs) quite loudly. Uh, One time he said, I'm afraid to go to church for fear of hearing something very extraordinary. I laughed and said he never went, and that he always managed to be very conveniently either unable to come down for a Sunday or to be ill, which made him laugh very much. I thought he wanted... One of, what was one of his... Uh, obey the king, obey God? Yes, but uh, from a distance. Right, OK. <laughs> yeah, if he tells you to do something specifically yes. to you... Right, then that's fine. It's a flexible rule. And uh, also the way that he pronounced words amused yeah. her. Mm-hmm. Um, we then had great fun about the pronunciation of words. Rome, room... Gold, gould, revenue, revenue. Lord Melbourne pronounces all in the latter manner. If ever there was someone in need of an Xbox, it's Queen <laughs> Victoria, age 18. And he was a bit of a sleepy chap as well. Um, Lord Melbourne said he was quite well, and when I said I thought him not well the night before, he said, only sleepy. That's not a sign of being ill. It's right to sleep after dinner. We ought all to lie down all around the room and sleep. Which made me laugh very much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's um, easily amused. This is nice. She is, because <laughs> she hasn't seen an yeah. Xbox or and any yes, other entertainment. Sorry, she hasn't also hasn't really been in anyone else's company by she, this point. Because she'd been in the Kensington system under Conroy, yeah. where she's just sort of trapped in the room, so that's why she doesn't really know any of this stuff. Okay, so suddenly she's got this very charismatic, mm. sort of relaxed yeah. man telling all this stuff. She finds it all highly amusing. And he's really relaxed around her, and she's been around all this sort of mm. pent-up aggression. And, yeah, okay, so exactly. That they also talk about some of her predecessors. Mm. Uh, Lord Melbourne said that Richard III by Shakespeare was a very fine play I observed that Richard was a very bad man Lord Melbourne also thinks he was a horrid man he believes him to have been deformed which some people deny and thinks there is no doubt that he murdered those two young princes well she should um, tune into Rex Factor I suppose Um, he also said about George III that he had a hurried manner but was shrewd, acute and most scrupulously civil he added that the king was rather tall red in the face, large though not corpulent man prejudiced and obstinate beyond conception that's quite a good summary, actually. And my favourite one on Henry VIII. Yes. When uh, Victoria was saying that he uh, he didn't treat his wife very well, yeah. to which Melbourne said, "Oh, but those women bothered him so." Well. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose they did. <laughs> I mean, they yeah, did. yeah. They did. I like this chap. Victoria, as we're probably getting a sense of, relies on him extensively. Mm. So he's there's a mental role, as you said, the Kensington system. She's very ignorant, but she's also very nervous and shy. Mm. because she's been protected yeah. and kept away and suddenly she's the queen and got to hold all these important meetings in front of lots and lots of people. So as one occasion said, I then said I felt so nervous and shy. That wasn't at all observed, he said. 
I said that I often stood before a person not knowing what to say, and Lord Melbourne said that the longer one stood thinking, the worse it was, and he really thought the best thing to do was to say anything commonplace and foolish better than to say nothing. Well, you're absolutely right. Exactly. I just bumbling all the time. Yeah, just blah, 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 blah. Then when she first went to um, council meetings, it was nice having him there supporting, mm. but on the 1st of February, 1838... This was the first council that I have yet held at which Lord Melbourne was not present, and I must say I felt sad not to see him in his place, as I feel a peculiar satisfaction, nay, I must own almost a security, at seeing him present at these formal proceedings, as I know and feel that I have a friend near me. This may sound childish, but it is not so. I mean, it is a bit. She's mm. meant to be head of state. Yeah. Um, it's nice that she's got this chap, mm. but, you know, how benevolent is he? Well, I mean, it's a bit too much. As um, Lord Hatherton notes, she could not bear that he should be out of sight. If Melbourne even left the room, her eyes followed him, and she sighed when he was gone. Mm. And at some point, he's going to have to go on a rather permanent basis. Yeah. 1839, the Jamaican Constitution Bill. In Jamaica, which is part of the British Empire, the planters there were resisting British attempts to end the acceleration of getting rid of apprenticeships. Because mm. this is when they'd abolished slavery, they had a sort of intermediary period where the ex-slaves would be apprentices and then they'd just be freed. Yeah. But the planters in Jamaica didn't really want them to stop being apprentices. They just wanted to keep them. Yeah. So Melbourne's government proposes that they would enforce them being liberated. They sort of scrap the constitution and say, just do this. Well, the problem for them is that for a lot of people, it was enforcing liberalism through autocracy. I mean... Not really, yeah, at the time it must have been viewed like that. But. Well, as such, that his majority was reduced to just five votes. Wow. Which wasn't really enough for a stable government. Mm. So he told Victoria that he was going to have to resign. Oh. She doesn't take it well. The state of agony, grief and despair into which this has placed me may be easier imagined than described. All, all my happiness gone. That happy, peaceful life destroyed. That dearest, kind Lord Melbourne, no longer my minister. I sobbed and cried much. Could only put on my dressing gown. She sobbed and cried. How many prime ministers does she have? This is <laughs> it's a worrying She pattern. just craves um, a sort of dominant male in her life, doesn't mm. she? So this is where we had, if we recall, the a bedchamber crisis. Oh, yes. When Peel's meant to come yes. in. So Melbourne advised her to call on the Duke of Wellington... He will say he's too old to be Prime Minister and suggest that she call on Sir Robert Peel, mm. which, of course, is what happens. But Victoria is very concerned not to lose the ladies of her household because there's a custom that you change them because they're the wives of the yeah. minister, so they're all Whigs, mm. and Peel is a Conservative. So the first meeting, you're not very impressed. The Queen wrote to Peel, who came after two, embarrassed and put out, says entering the government in a minority is difficult. He felt it arduous and that he would require me to demonstrate confidence in the government and that my household would be one of the marks of that. My appeal's going to want some of the women to go. Yeah. Second meeting. Sir Robert said, Now, about the ladies, upon which I said I could not give up any of my ladies and never had imagined such a thing. He asked if I meant to retain all. All, I said. The mistress of the robes and the ladies of the bedchamber? All. I said that they would not interfere and that I never talk politics with them. Well, I mean, this is a question I should have asked at the time, but seriously, we're having a <laughs> government of the most powerful nation yes. on earth yep. brought, brought down by who puts her clothes on a bed in the morning. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if they do that, but the, that you know what I mean. That's, uh, it's one of those where it's ridiculous both ways. Who's ever... 
st- whoever's stance you look at it it's seems so ridiculous. Petty. Is it petty? I mean, how much power do they actually have? It's not. I mean, they may have some power in terms of obviously they can whisper stuff and they can be caught gossip. But she but shouldn't be able to. Hundred years anyway. ago, it would have been an issue. But more of an issue is probably the fact that it's custom that it happens. Mm. So if she doesn't do it, that sends out a sign that she prefers Whigs to Conservatives, particularly right. when the Conservatives are minor- minority. Right. So you can kind of understand why Peel would... Just need some decent spinning. Yeah. But uh, Victoria... Didn't have a tucker. Doesn't want to move. Peel tried to explain all of this, but mm. she wasn't having any of it. Um, so Peel sent Wellington back to try and sort everything out. So he came along saying, Well, I am sorry to find there is a difficulty. <laughs> oh, he began it, not me. It is offensive to me to suppose that I talk to any of my ladies upon public affairs. I know you do not, but the public does not know this, and it is on account of the impression necessarily to be produced on the public mind that the proposal is made to you. Uh, but he doesn't get anywhere. No? Victoria stamps her feet, won't move. She's a bit petulant. So Peel and the Cabinet decide they can't govern as a minority without Victoria's support, and they give up. Without her support? This is what I, how, I mean, we're fully constitutional here, really. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, he Viscount Melbourne was the last one who was just dismissed. Out. Yeah. So what's, the, what's she can? But but as you said, William the Fourth did dismiss somebody, and that's only ten years ago. Oh, did we it was that soon? Of right. course, because obviously with Victoria, we're thinking now we're going to twentieth century, but this yeah. is still you're still very within ten years. Eighteenth century politics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's it is still important. Uh, but Victoria is just very pleased about all of this because mm. it means Melbourne's back. Sir Robert must be very weak if even the ladies were required to share his political opinions. This was quite wonderful. What a blessed and unexpected escape. And Melbourne is a bit of a bad influence in some ways. Mm, I thought this was coming. One thing um, for call was Lady Flora Hastings, who was one of Victoria's ladies, but associated with Conroy, the man who'd sort of held her under... Oh, yeah. Um, She thought they were having an affair, so when Flora Hastings suffered from a bowel disorder and pain in in her sides... Rumour went around that she was trying to conceal a pregnancy, possibly by Conroy. Victoria thinks this in Melbourne very much encourages her, and they have this sort of tittle-tattle, rumours and gossiping. Mm. Meanwhile, she's clearly getting ill. Doctors said that she was a virgin, and... Oh, they actually have to test. Actually tested. Poor girl. She was a virgin, and she ended up dying from cancer. Dying from cancer with rumour. Mm. Mm. And Victoria... Really wasn't very popular about this. No. And that was Melbourne Stone, thrown at her carriage, heckled by the public. Because and they know that she's been spreading rumours? Because they knew, uh, yeah, the court gossip moves mm. around, so people knew. Right. And of course, with the combination of this, because the Hastings family were Conservatives. Oh, and she's. So we've had the bedchamber well, crisis, yeah. Flora Hastings, mm. she's got an issue. And also, Melbourne wasn't the most proactive of Prime Ministers. As we said, he's largely steps back from day to day politics chats with Victoria all day and has no interest in social reform. It discourages Victoria from getting interest in this sort of thing and implies the country's in a much better state than it was. Oh, Dave Orgold. <laughs> his catchphrase, not his catchphrase, but his sort of... It's got, whatever you say now, I wish it was his catchphrase. Go on. <laughs> Why not leave it alone? That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> whatever will be, yeah, yeah. will be. Why do you say we can put off to tomorrow? Wellington said, uh, although he uh, liked Melbourne, he said he was afraid that he joked too much with her and made her treat things too lightly, which are very serious. Mm. So one thing was um, Victoria very much enjoyed some of the works of Charles Dickens, and she was fascinated by Oliver Twist and the depredation described in it. But Melbourne was not so impressed. 
I don't like those murders. I wish to keep them away. It's all among workhouses and coffin makers and pickpockets. I don't like that load-abasing style. It's all slang. I don't like that, like that load-abasing view of mankind. I don't like those things. I wish to avoid them. I don't like them in reality, and therefore I don't wish to see them represented. He's almost actually saying he's just closing his eyes to the problem. Yes. No, 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 no. He's admitted that exist in, in fiction, but mm. he won't do anything about it going on around yeah. him. Wow. And that's not great, given that he is such an influence on her at this point. Mm. It's not a good, no. good starting point. No, not, not at all. However, he can't go on forever. In 1841, he resigns for the final time. Mm. And Victoria isn't quite as bothered. But what, why did he resign? Just old uh, Oh, the government defeated again. Oh, right, OK. Because this time, of course, after after the previous resignation, she's got married. Oh, Prince Albert. Yep, yep. So head yeah. over heels in love with Albert and doesn't need to rely on Melbourne quite as much. She's got somebody else mm. of her own age and a okay. husband. And Albert isn't quite so keen on the weak social circles, thinks it's a bit of a bad influence. Is he more conservative? I mean, He's it, more conservative. He's much anti-wig. more... Hard working and not that Whigs aren't hard working yeah. in terms of the Melbourne Whig. Albert's much more serious, hard working sort of family man. Mm. Doesn't right. want parties and dances. Mm. So, oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah. This time when he resigns, Victoria says that the probability of parting from so kind and excellent a being as Lord Melbourne as a minister, for a friend he will always remain, is very, very painful. To take it philosophically is my wish, and quietly I certainly shall. Albert is the greatest possible comfort to me in every way, and my position is much more independent than it was before. I cannot say what a comfort and support my beloved angel is to me. So she's not crying and hysterical and mm. stamping yeah. her feet anymore. She's like, well, it's a shame, but I've got Albert now. How old is she here? Uh, well, she I mean, she's only uh, early 20s here, so oh, she's okay. still very young, but yeah. Yeah. a little bit different. Melbourne afterwards, um, suffers a bit of a decline. It's a bit sad, really. 1842, the year later, he suffers a bit of a stroke and health never really fully recovers. And for him, this is sort of the happiest period of his life where he's just lounging about with a young queen mm. hanging on his every word. And he finds it quite hard to adjust when he's not seeing her all the time and she doesn't rely on him. And yeah. All that. His life's a little bit empty after that. Dies in uh, 1848, 69 years old, having had a not particularly great last few years. And when Victoria hears about it, again, the reaction isn't that big. You will grieve to hear that our dear good, fri- uh, dear old friend Lord Melbourne is dying. One cannot forget how good and kind and amiable he was, and it brings back so many recollections to my mind, though, God knows, I never wish that time back again. Why? Just because she was she was lost, she was a bit at sea herself. Yeah, and I think she looks back on it, like with the bedchamber crisis, you think, oh, it's maybe a little bit silly then. Mm. She was almost embarrassed when she read some of the things that she wrote about Melbourne. And thought, oh, that's a little bit much. Yeah. So she's moved on. She was her little... He was her rock. She was yeah. her limpet. But not anymore. And now the rock needs the limpet. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the end of Lord Melbourne. So we'll go on to our next Prime Minister. Sir Robert Peel. Sir Robert Peel, a Conservative... Born in Lancashire in 1788 to one of the richest textile manufacturers of the early Industrial Revolution. So he's very different background to Melbourne. He's not an aristocrat. He's from industrialists, mm. business people. Um, and uh, developed a Tamworth pig. Hang on. What's this? Is that like a spinning jenny? No, it's a pig. Huh? A Tamworth pig. A oh, pig he developed Tamworth. a Tamworth yes. pig. He bred yeah. it. Oh, yeah. I see. I thought it was like a... Yeah, bred Irish with local... 
right. this town with the round. Um, elected as an MP in 1809, 21 years old. 1814, he founded the Royal Irish Constabulary. Also Bodies! Later. Mm. Reformed also the jail system, so uh, payments for jailers and education for inmates. And Catholic emancipation, he was a resolute opponent. Really? Dead set against it. Uh, 1815, he even challenged Danny O'Connell to a duel. Danny O'Donnell? Daniel O'Donnell. <laughs> he cha- we're still duelling. He challenged him. This is, you know, this is um, still George III reign at this point. Okay, George III. They didn't III. actually, do it. Didn't actually do it. And, but yes, 1829, he established London Metropolitan Police Service, Scotland Yard. Yeah. And by 1857, it was compulsory for all cities to have a police force. This was seen as quite an imposition at the time, like the state mm. really having far too much control and standing armies have been really really unpopular the idea yeah. of that throughout so having this force they were very unpopular initially okay yeah like a government mm. civil army and, and he was briefly prime minister 1834 to 35 after melbourne had been dismissed by william the fourth and he was uh, uh, prime minister for a little bit right before melbourne came back before melbourne came back very importantly in 1834 he uh, issued the tamworth manifesto that wasn't a pig not a pig no, this is a document good. okay Getting it all clear. This was to distinguish himself from the old Toryism of Wellington, whom he'd been the number two for for quite a while. And it accepted the 1832 uh, Great Reform Act as the last word on the Constitution, promised to review civil and ecclesiastical institutions, correct abuses, protect the established religion, opposed change for its own sake, because they feared a perpetual vortex of agitation. But Conservatives would reform to survive. So, in effect, he's trying to move the party forward a little bit and saying, we're accepting all of these things. So, now they're, they're now accepting the 1832 Great Reform Act. Yeah. That was the Great Reform Act, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but they're saying that's the final final thing. On the Constitution. Right. So, on electoral reform, that's it. But they're willing to make changes in other things to correct abuses and make things all a bit more fair. Um, it seems very significant, though, seen as pretty much the sort of foundation document for the Conservative Party as a sort of separation from the old Toryism to a more business-focused Conservative mm. Party. Anyway, as we found out, he made a very bad impression on Victoria mm. when they first met. George IV had complained that Peel used to thrust his arms out when he talked, <laughs> and Victoria disliked the way that he pointed his toes and shook down his cuffs like a dance teacher. Sounds more like a sort of flamingo. <laughs> so, yeah. I think, uh, as Melbourne tried to tell at one point, you know, Melbourne said to him, you know, I'm, I'm used to being with kings and queens and princes, but Peel's not that kind of chap. He's not used to this. He's not in his comfort zone. Yeah, he does a weird dance. He does a weird dance. (laughs) (laughs) Seems to think he's appropriate. Trust his arms out. Peel struggles, though. He's a bit awkward around her, because he's not used to being around a queen, and Victoria's Mm. not used to being around... Mingos. Mingos. Um, As she said, he's such a cold, odd man, she can't make out what he means. He said he couldn't expect me to have confidence in him I had in you, and which he never can have, as he has not deserved it. Also, when she got married, she had further reason to get upset with Albert because there was unease in Parliament at another foreign and Coburg marriage and the necessary allowance that Parliament would have to grant him. So Melbourne was defeated on a vote to try and give him a £50,000 a year allowance. It was reduced, I think, to £30,000 a year. And Victoria wasn't very happy about this. It had been made quite a party question. Vile, confounded, infernal Tories. That Peel had spoken against the 50,000. Nasty wretch. As long as I live, I'll never forgive those infernal scoundrels with Peel as their head. As long as I live for this act of personal spite. Because they only gave her 30,000. 
But she, they, she's got all her money as well. It's sort of, it it's seems as an affront to his status, really, that they say, no, no, he doesn't deserve that much. And it's just because he's foreign? Foreign, and also this is after the bedchamber crisis. Right. and you know. So she's not very pleased about so A bit of spot him. on all sides. Yeah. yeah. However, when he comes back in 1841, everything goes very smoothly. As we alluded to earlier, Albert is a man who's quite serious, quite stiff, a bit socially awkward, but happily married, family man. He's just like Peel. Yeah. And he likes the idea of Peel becoming Prime Minister. So Albert, using all of his tact, persuades two of the senior ladies of the household to retire. Thus, there were a couple of vacancies, uh, yeah. a couple of Conservative women yeah. come in, they don't even have to broach the subject, and everything's fine. It's just your new, your new ladies. All sorted by Albert. Genuine friendship develops, particularly between Albert and Peel, but also with Victoria. Peel has cabinet keys given to Albert, involves him in discussions with Victoria when doing government. So in their first meeting, Peel observed, The Queen has acted towards me not merely with perfect fidelity and honour, but with a great kindness and consideration. Cabinet keys? Uh, to the boxes with the documents in. Right, yeah. Okay, sorry. And the Victoria says, The first interview with Sir Robert Peel has gone off well. He made many protestations of his sorrow at what must give pain to the Queen i.e. having parted with Melbourne. Mm. So she's a little bit happier. He's got to actually do some governing, Damn unlike it. Melbourne. <laughs> Comes in at a hard time as a slump in world trade, a budget deficit of uh, se- a whopping £7.5 million. Crikey Can't even imagine that no. kind of budget. Lord's mercy. Low confidence in banks, businesses and trade uh, deficit was in place. In 1842, he reintroduced income tax. When was that first introduced? First what? introduced, I think, oh, can I remember this? I think during the Napoleonic Wars. And, but it was because it but was then they got just, rid of it. Yeah, it just seemed to raise thing. money. Yeah. Uh, but he brings it back. It raised more money than expected. So they thought, oh, <laughs> stick with thing, this. Yeah. Uh, Earl of Shaftesbury, a social reformer, introduced the Mines and Con- Collieries Act in 1842, outlawed women and children working underground in coal mines. Very good. Praised by Albert. The Factory Act in, a- Factory Act in 1844, children from 9 to 13 re- restricted to just working nine hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's not funny. <laughs> and uh, women and young people limited to 12 hours uh, per day. And factories had to be washed with lime every 14 months, machinery fenced in and accidental deaths reported and investigated. So trying to make yeah, things a little bit good. safer and a little bit better. But strangely now a bit retrograde. <laughs> saying women aren't allowed to work. <laughs> in foreign affairs, uh, she supported the Foreign Secretary, uh, Lord Aberdeen's rapprochement with France. So in 1843, she visited Louis-Philippe at Chateau d'Eau at Treport which was the first time that the British monarch had met the French monarch since Henry VIII. Really? In the field of cloth of gold. Uh, oh, yes, no, I remember that. But this, and also presumably the first time when there hadn't been contesting any French land. Yes, so <laughs> on good wow. terms. And Victoria's pleased with how it's all going. I've little to add to Albert's yes- letter of yesterday, except my extreme admiration of our worthy Peel, who shows himself a man of unbounded loyalty, courage, patriotism and high-mindedness. So complete vault fast. Complete vault fast. She's loving it. However, he does have difficulties because of his party. Peel? <laughs> Where he does his flamingo dance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Didn't go down well. <laughs> Wellington was unimpressed. Yeah. He wanted, as I said, a new Conservative Party whose focus much more on appealing to industry, business, manufacturing, rather than the old landed aristocracy. So he makes lots of big changes to some of the old policies that the party had followed. However, he has to despise the backward types in his party, as he calls them the blockheads. Yeah. So the awkward squad, the backbenchers who don't like any of these new things he's doing. He's determined to plough on regardless, however unpopular it increasingly makes him. Mm. He's also seen as being rather aloof because he builds himself a mansion at Drayton. He's friends with Prince Albert 
and he's clearly head and shoulders above everyone else in the party. So, you know, there's a bit of a distance mm. growing quite and he's quickly. he's just pushing things through, not really talking to his party. Yeah. 1844, Sugar. He was uh, defeated in an attempt to abolish duties. Uh, that paid on Sugar. He managed to persuade the House to reverse uh, its rope, but he knew that his political end was starting to get close. 1845, the Maynooth Grant. This is a Catholic seminary in uh, Ireland with an £8,000 a year grant, but this hadn't been changed since 1809. Mm. So Peel said, well, we should probably increase this a bit to £26,000 a year. It's quite a lot of money. And it attracts huge opposition from many in his party because, of course, they're all rabid anti-Catholics. Yeah. Peel, of course, is a little bit of a change, we remember. He had voted against Catholic emancipation, but he's now starting to sympathise a little bit more with the Catholic plight. Um, it does get passed and does set a trend for financing Catholic schools and Victoria 100% behind him. Oh, great. One of the greatest measures ever proposed. The bigotry, the wicked and blind passion it brings forth is quite dreadful and I blush for Protestantism. Mm. So uh, in 1849, Victoria and Albert made a point of visiting Maynus while they were in Ireland. They went to Ireland, that's cool. They went, to, they went a few times actually to Ireland. Oh, right. Didn't they have a, was there a royal residence there? No. Oh, we're getting to come, to come to that. Um, but the biggie for Peel was the repeal of the Corn Laws yes, in 1846. Right, There's probably a phrase that lots of people dread hearing when yeah. they get Corn Laws and yeah. Victorian politics. Basically, to protect producers of cereals from competition against cheap foreign imports, there are heavy duties imposed on importing corn and cereal. Mm. It means that basically you don't, you just use what you've got make, at home. Uh, homegrown corn cheaper. Exactly. So it's sort of protectionism. However, in Ireland, in 1845, potato crop fails massively. Irish farmers heavily reliant on this, both for money but also for food. And there's an appalling famine that spreads across Ireland, known as the Great Famine now. But the Corn Laws make this much worse because they have to get rid of some of their potatoes to sell them. They have to sell stuff, but it's too expensive for them to actually import Replacement crops. Because they, they're counted as part of... They're part of UK because of the Act of Charles, Union yeah. in 1800. So they're starving and they can't afford to get any food in because of the Corn Laws. Mm, right. Peel, recognised as a problem, couldn't convince his colleagues to suspend the Corn Laws straight away or to reconvene Parliament to deal with it as a matter of emergency. In a famine? In a famine, so there's still a, a recess. Wow. And they don't, they don't want to come back. Lord John Russell, now the leader of the Whigs, declares for free trade and repeal, so he sort of... Right. Pushes the boat out a bit. So Peel pushes for repeal of the Corn Laws. <laughs> Knows that his party are going to be dead set against it. Initially, they're defeated and he resigns, but the Whigs can't form a government, so he comes back. Then in 1846, with Whig support, he passes Corn Law repeal. Did, did, was he the one that introduced Corn Laws in the first place? No, I don't think so. But it is a very Peelite law in that it's pro-business, pro-at least... British business, British yeah. business. Mm. Um... So it seems strange that then he's defeated on something that would be something he'd introduce anyway. Well, I mean, it's because, as I say, he's sort of been changing, really, from how he was maybe early in his yeah. career. So he's doing a lot more reforms. And, you know, he's tried to solve the problem. Yeah, true. Really. Uh, Wellington forces it through the House of Lords, but his time's coming up. And sure enough, a little bit later on the Irish Coercion Bill, he's defeated and he resigns. So he faces defeat once, that's it? Well, he's been defeated a couple of times, actually, and he keeps sort of coming back, but he knows that he's lost the party support at this point. Victoria, 
not happy about this. It does seem strange that at the moment of triumph, the government should have to resign. The Queen seizes his opportunity of expressing her deep concern at losing his services, which he regrets as much for the country as for herself and the Prince. In whatever position Sir Robert Peel may be, we shall ever look on him as a kind and true friend. Yeah, she's changed the tune. Yeah, no more wailing. And <laughs> Until I die, I this man. <laughs> now, this, it has quite a big impact on politics, this, because... About a third of the Conservative Party split, in effect, into sort of what's called the Peelites. Mm. So they follow Robert Peel. So we've got a protectionist block mm. led by Lord Derby, and then these Peelites are sort of free trade. They're not quite Whigs, they're not quite Conservative. 1850s, it's all very mixed up. The sort of party allegiances get very fluid, and lots of people you see appearing in all sorts of different types of government. That's quite exciting, but difficult for Rex Factor. It is a little bit, yes. Um, however, for Peel... He's not got that much part to play in all of it. In 1850, he was thrown from his horse riding up Constitutional Hill. Horse fell on him. And uh, sadly, he died three days later. I did not know that's how he went. Mm. He he wasn't Prime Minister at this point. No. He wasn't even in politics. Uh, He was still an MP, but he wasn't. Okay. wasn't in government. Which also, my poor dear Albert, who had been so fresh and well when we came back, looked so pale and fagged again. He has felt and feels Sir Robert's loss dreadfully. He feels he's lost his second father. That's they're huge words. As Albert him said, I'm fearfully in want of a true friend and counsellor. Mm. So it hits him very hard. These people just stop putting all of their eggs in one basket. Indeed, they're getting a have, bit too close. Just have more friends. Anyway, that's Peel done, so we're on to our next Prime Minister. Lord John Russell! Uh, born in 1792, the youngest son of the Duke of Bedford, which is sort of a sort of principal old-school Whig dynasty. Um, he was one of the more reforming Whigs um, from back in the day, so he was one of the p- leading figures for the 1832 Reform Act. Mm. So he's a bit more proactive than Good. Melville was. Uh, but he had a lot of trouble um, in this government. Lack of party unity meant he wasn't really able to pass any of his major reforms that he wanted to. But he does have a tale of two cities dedicated to him. Oh, really? By Charles mm. Dickens. Little fact. One of the things he has to deal with, of course, is the Irish famine. Mm. Um tried to introduce public works where they'd have about half a million people employed just so they'd have jobs and stuff to do. Unfortunately, the man in charge of all of this, Sir Charles Trevelyan, thought that the famine was a judgment from God for these um, barbarous Irish types and so essentially ordered the works to be unproductive. So they didn't really work very well. So it's like a Keynesian principle where they just putting people into work to try and kickstart an economy. That's what they kind of did, but the man in charge of actually doing it sort of deliberately... Obstructed things. Yeah, and blamed God. Who is this fella? It's Charles Trevelyan. Do we hear from him again? Uh, we'll maybe look at a little bit. Not in this episode. We'll maybe look at him a bit more next time. The other problem was that as Whigs, they believed in what's called laissez-faire. In other words, the market will just take care of it all. Yeah. So that'll come round, it'll sort it out, people will get food and money again. But by and large, they weren't in for going in with loads stuff, of food. Yeah. Peel had actually done a lot of sending food out. Seems sensible. Reliever, but Russell's government didn't do it so much. <laughs> Contemporaries were quite widely critical of the inadequacies of the measures. Russell maintained for the rest of his life that he hadn't let Ireland starve, mm. but generally it's not thought they did a terribly good job. As you see next time, it was a pretty horrific famine. Yeah. Uh, Chartism was also a thing that Lord John Russell had to face. This was um, Origins in 1838. There was a People's Charter where all these social reformers got together and advocated having a vote for all men over the age of 21, a secret ballot, no property qualification for MPs, payment for MPs, equal-sized constituencies, and annual parliament, parliaments. 
You'd think MPs would be all over that payment bit. That bit, but other stuff mm, they're not quite not so, so keen much. on. 1842, a petition was um, presented to Parliament with three million signatures. Wow. How, what was the population at the time? Uh, much more, was it? <laughs> three million and one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Parliament declined to receive it. They actually <laughs> voted not to let them give it to them. Well, at least it registered. <laughs> yes, indeed. They didn't take quite the same view, though. So 14 English and 8 Scottish counties saw workers striking yeah. in reaction to this. Then 1848, in Europe, it was a year of revolutions, lots of continental revolutions mm. going on all over the place, including in France, where um, they went back to a republic. Yeah. Um, Chartists had a massive convention at Kennington Common, which was attended by 150,000 people. Wow. And they then had a petition which is said to contain five million signatures. What's the population of this time? <laughs> About five million and one. <laughs> Probably many of these were forged, given that some of the names included Queen Victoria and Mr Punch. Yeah. Although many people couldn't actually write, so, you know. Yeah. Um, and again, they wanted to take it to Parliament. Government, in the year of all these revolutions, wasn't very keen on the 150,000 people marching on Parliament, demanding mm. lots of big, big changes mm. to government. Duke of Wellington, still kicking around, is still the commander-in-chief. Really? So he organises uh, the response to it, apparently in a prodigious state of excitement. Yeah, he's back. He's, I imagine him firing pistols in the air, <laughs> saying, here I go again. Gets out the artillery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> organises 100,000 extra special constables to deal with it. Actually, March proceeds very peacefully, petition is given, and ultimately the movement kind of peters out. But there was a very real fear in 1848 that they thought this could, this could go very, very badly. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. But it doesn't. Because they finally received the... Yeah, that's all they yeah. wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. The big headache for Russell, though, is actually foreign policy, yeah. and particularly his foreign secretary, Lord Palmerston. Yeah. Palmerston is a very headstrong man. And while Victoria and Albert identify with their fellow monarchs in the established order, Palmerston has a tendency to support continental revolutions, and he also tended to act without royal approval and would send dispatches and whatnot before Victoria had a chance to see them. It reminds me of Fox. Remember Fox? Fox, yes, Charles James Fox. Yeah, he was a fan of revolutions, but was... A roguish figure, yeah. yeah. And Victoria is very well aware of his tactics, so she complained to Russell, Lord Palmerston has, as usual, pretended not to have had time to submit the draft of the Queen before he'd sent it off. (laughs) Good excuse. Um, Garibaldi, in Italy, Palmerston supplied the Sicilian rebels with arms against King Ferdinand II. Mm. Again, without any uh, support from his mind. Oh, he did? Yeah, he just unilaterally just said, yeah, we're behind this, have some weapons. Wow, that's massive. Isn't that some sort of... Victoria said the partiality of Palmerston in the Italian question really surpasses all conception and makes the Queen very uneasy. It makes her uneasy. This man's just going to war with another. Well, she uh, quotes otherwise, where she says that she, throughout this period, fears for the entire piece of Europe because he's so unpredictable. Lock him up. What's he doing? In 1850, there's a man, Don Pacifico, who's a Gibraltar merchant living in Athens, and he's attacked by an anti-Semitic mob, and the Greek police fail to intervene. And because being from Gibraltar, he was technically a British subject, mm. he appeals for help. So Palmerston, very measured response, sent in the Navy to blockade the port of Piraeus. Oh, this is the birth of gunboat diplomacy, isn't it? Very much so. So Russia and France protest, quite happy about yeah. this. Victoria said that the levity of the man is really inconceivable. It is. And <laughs> House of Lords condemns him. 
yeah. and he's going to be impeached. But and they, he uh, delivers a very popular speech, five hours long. They tended to be very long in these days. Without breaking for water, completely transforms the whole situation. Even Victoria had to admit it was most brilliant. But as he, his famous speech, he said, as the Roman in days of old held himself free from indignity when he could say, Quis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen. So also a British subject in whatever land he may be shall feel confident that the watchful eye and the strong arm of England will protect him against injustice and wrong. I remember learning about that, and it always reminds me of the opening flap of a British passport, where it says the Queen requires the Baroness passport <laughs> free passage. I think it's uh, yeah. backed up with gunboat diplomacy. British subject, years ago. sir. <laughs> I think you'll let me pass. <laughs> no, when you're shaking your shoes out, Don Pacifico. Uh, however, he can't go on like this forever. Yeah. 1851. Um, well, 1848. Uh, Napoleon the Third, who's the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, Franco-Prussian War chap. Mm. He was elected uh, president of France. But in 1851, when he was due to stop being president, he just staged a coup d'etat and declared himself emperor. Wee, that's so back to forward. Victoria asked the uh, Britain's ambassador in France to do nothing for the moment and, you know, they'd see what was happening and take a measured response, only to be told that Palmerston had already expressed the government's full approval for the coup. But he, he is so out of line. <laughs> and... Uh, He's made to resign. Victoria, at this point, said to Russell, and she'd said many times before, he's got to go, but Russell said, we can't really go on without him. Why not put anyone in there? He's very popular, he's a very important senior figure in the government. He'd be more dangerous out of it than in it. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Really not, I mean, dangerous within the party, but to the rest of the world's citizens. Uh, But he does resign, as Victoria says, our relief was great, and we felt quite excited by the news, for anxiety and worry during the last five years and a half, which was indescribable, was mainly, if not entirely, caused by him. Yeah, he's just got his finger on the nuclear button. But Russell was right. In 1852, Palmerston launches a tit-for-tat. A what now? There was a militia bill... um, which turned into something of a vote of confidence against Russell's government, and Palmerston, having been kicked out, introduced an amendment to it and helped to bring about the government's defeat, and Russell's brought down. Right. So a year after getting rid of Palmerston, Palmerston brings down the whole government. Oh, God. Yeah, he was right. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Russell. So, Lord John Russell is out. The Earl of Derby! Edward Smith Stanley, the 14th Earl of Derby, becomes Prime Minister in 1852. Uh, he was born in 1799, and his family title dates back to 1485 and the Battle of Bosworth. Yeah, Battle of Bosworth, wow. 14 Earls, so it's a pretty well-established family. Initially, he was a Whig, uh, served in Gray's government of 1830. 1831, the Stanley Letter established national schools in Ireland. Oh, and it's still the legal basis for all national schools in the Republic of Ireland ah, to this day. Um, however, he falls out uh, with the Whigs over a, um, Church of Ireland reform, attempts to chart a sort of a middle course between Russell and the Tories, um, which called a Derby Dilly. <laughs> but he ends up just being subsumed by Peel and the Conservatives. Um, but, so in 1852, Russell falls, Derby tries to form a government. Why didn't, why didn't Palmerston... I thought Presume Palmerston was going to come in as... Victoria was not going to ask Palmerston to be Prime Minister. So she still did have a say, though? She could just say, I'm not asking him. Oh, yeah, she can Yeah, she can ask whoever she wants. Mm. Because, as I say, it's still not quite so well-defined that, you know, you, it's still kind of the person who's got the confidence of right. the Parliament. Mm. So, in 1852, Derby attempts to form a Conservative government, Conservative government. Initially, he declines the offer, 
Um, and he said, It is a bungling fisherman who strikes at the first nibble. I shall wait till my fish has gorged the bait, and then I am sure to land him. So he's playing hard to get for oh, some right. reason. Okay. But he said yes the second time. Okay, weird. Forms government. <laughs> Uh, this is post-Peel, of course. So the Conservative Party is still divided. So Peel supporters, led by Lord Aberdeen, are still not playing ball. They still don't want to be involved with the Conservatives. So it's a lot of very junior men who haven't mm. got any experience. Indeed, only three of them have previously been Privy Councillors. So they're all pretty much unknowns. Although, notably, Disraeli appears at this point uh-huh. as Derby's Chancellor yeah. of the Exchequer. Um, Victoria said, we have a most talented, capable and courageous Prime Minister, but all his people have no experience, have never been in any sort of office before. Spoke Victoria. Well, yes, but of course, it's different for monarchs. She's appointed by God. (laughs) Remember? Sorry. (laughs) Um, And Wellington ends up giving the ministry its rather unfortunate nickname when uh, the list of the new ministers is being read out in the House of Lords. And he's 80-odd at this point, and in fact dies later that year but every time a name was read out he kept loudly asking who who Brilliant. so it became known as the who act. who ministry oh great um as victoria then said you know our acquaintance acquaintance is confined almost entirely to lord darby but then he is the government they do nothing without him he has all the departments to look after and on being asked by somebody if he was not much tired he said i am quite well with my babies <laughs> That's patronising. Very patronising. And indeed, it's very short-lived. Uh, his main aim was just to try and avoid upsetting the Whigs and provoking a uh, vote of confidence against him. But the first budget was defeated and the government falls. Yeah, so it was never going to happen. It was a minority government and a split party. Because mm-hmm. this is the age of that sort of murky party. Exactly, party, exactly. Right? Anyway, Derby's incredibly <laughs> short-lived uh, prime ministerial administration ends. So we have another one. The Earl of Aberdeen. George Hamilton Gordon, 4th Earl of Aberdeen, becomes Prime Minister again in 1852. He was born in 1794 in Edinburgh, lost his father when he was seven years old, and his mother at 11, and his grandfather at 17. Um, So he meets William Pitt, the younger, Mm. as a teenager, and chose him to be his guardian. Oh, right. So Pitt's very important role in Aberdeen's upbringing urges him to pursue a role in public life. Mm. Uh, after Peel's death in 1850, Aberdeen is now the leading Peelite. Right. So this is, in effect, the first Peelite administration. Which in itself is this crazy conservative. Kind of, of conservative, shit. but some of the sort of Whig types also yeah. have an appeal. It's a coalition. Co- well, indeed. Yeah. Um, and he's got a good relationship with Victoria. She likes him. 1844, when another one of those times when Peel, Robert Peel might have fallen from power, said, I should be equally sorry to lose Lord Aberdeen, as he is so very fair and has served us personally so kindly and truly. Mm. And after Duke of Wellington died in 1852, early in the year, she said, we shall soon stand sadly alone. Aberdeen is almost the only personal friend of that kind we have left. Oh. Melbourne, Peel, <laughs> Liverpool, and now the Duke, all gone. She, there's a pattern here. Does she not think another one's going to pop up? She's going to lament. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Aberdeen, you know, he's, he was in her first government, so all these sort of people um, who were there for her when she was 18, they're all starting to drop off at this point. And it's from Aberdeen that they get Balmoral in 1847. He'd oh, right. acquired the land and the estates. He privately thought that having a permanent residence uh, in Scotland was a folly, but if they did have to have one, then he couldn't do better than Balmoral. And he just gave it to them? Oh, he's got loads of land. Okay. 1852, election. The Conservatives won 325 seats. The Whigs, 292, but there are about 38 
Peelite MPs, uh, 63 Irish MPs who kind of voted with the Peelites and the Whigs. So although the Conservatives got more seats, there are more non-Conservatives than mm. Conservatives. They don't have a majority. So after Derby being defeated, Aberdeen, as you said, forms a coalition. And Victoria is very pleased about it because it's got lots and lots of people in it. 53.8% of the seats, so they've got the majority. And it's got Lord John Russell. Oh, yeah? He's got Palmerston. Uh-oh. Home Secretary this time, though. Keeping oh, that close. And uh, Gladstone also comes in oh, as right. Chancellor. So, as Victoria said, the success of our excellent Aberdeen's arduous task and formation of so brilliant and strong a cabinet. It is the realisation of the country's and our most ardent wishes, and it deserves success and will, I think, command great support. To have my faithful friend Aberdeen as Prime Minister is a great happiness and comfort for me personally. So, this guy... Yeah, Aberdeen. He's experienced. He's experienced. He's now drawn together a whole group of other experienced folks. And some new ones, like Gladstone is Glad- new. Glad- oh, OK, so at this point, Gladstone, this is his first. He's a young whippersnapper. OK, right. So we're going Yeah, OK. Carry on. Home Affairs. Palmerston as Home Secretary. Oh. Does a pretty good job. I don't believe you. Uh, the Factory Act in 1853, he outlawed uh, labour by young people between 6pm and 6am. Oh, right, OK, yep. Uh, the Truck Act stopped employers from paying their workers in goods instead of money. Or, wow. or from forcing them to purchase goods from the shops that they owned. That's amazing. I can't believe that was still happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Smoke Abatement Act acted against all this smoke from coal fires. So they tried to reduce it a little bit. Make the act In London? Or just in... Uh, generally. 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 Okay. Uh, the vaccinate- Vaccination Act made it uh, vaccination of children compulsory. Wow. Wow, look, so this is the start of the eradication of smallpox. This is Jenner's mm. territory, right? Uh, penal reform reduced solitary confinement from 18 to just nine months. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a token, but... Penal Servitude Act uh, ended transportation to Van Diemen's Land. And Reformatory Schools Act, uh, juveniles can now be sent to sort of special schools rather than prison. I am surprised. Mm. He's found his role. He's found his niche. <laughs> yeah. Gladstone as Chancellor, 1853 budget, another one of these five-hour epics, wins huge praise and makes a very, very good impression on people, reformulates government fiscal policy. So he's trying to get away from all of this debt and try to balance the books a little bit more and change how things work. So there's some good government going on here. Yeah, there is. One of the things that they have to deal with, more importantly, is foreign policy and what's called the Eastern Question. Right. Aberdeen had held office during the Napoleonic Wars, so he saw Napoleon III and France as a threat to Britain. So he's inclined to support Russia. But Palmerston and Russell, despite their previous disputes, are united on seeing Russia as the big threat to Britain. So why have we got Russia against France in the first place? What's going on there? Uh, Well, just because countries are trying to expand and take up lots of territories and stuff. More important in terms of Russia, which they see as a threat to India... Oh, of course, yeah. Is that the Ottoman Empire, which is sort of Turkey, Mm. is crumbling at this stage. Sick man of Europe. Sick man of Europe. And Russia are trying to snap up all of its sort of European territories, which is thus expanding Russia's power and getting them closer as they go east to India. So that's why Palmerston and Russell are dead set against it. Things do get a little more tense. In Bethlehem, which is part of the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire at this time, there are riots and uh, fighting over custody of the Church of Nativity. So you've got Catholics, who's the French support against sort of, the Orthodox Church, who's supported by the Russians. Tsar Nicholas I of Russia complained that Turkish police had connived in the murder of Orthodox monks. 
So the Russian army marched onto the River Danube in uh, October 1853, occupied Turkish satellites, and then the Ottoman Empire declared war. So Turkey and Russia are at war. It's such feeble excuse, isn't it? That's such mm. an internal question. Yeah. <laughs> and then at Sinop, Britain initially remaining neutral, but then um, in November, Russian fleet sank a, Tur- a Turkish flotilla in which about 4,000 sailors uh, were killed, and the reports that many of them were shot in the water. Oh, Leads to moral outrage in Britain. So something must be done. Britain and France demanded that Russia abandon the Danube provinces, and when they didn't, in 1854, war was declared. First European war since Waterloo. So 1854, it's the Crimean War. So we've got Russia versus us and France. Yeah. Okay. Aberdeen was very reluctant about all of this. He'd been pursuing peace for the last decade or so, and he would have resigned, but Victoria begged him not to, because didn't, she didn't want to be abandoned to Palmerston. But he wasn't keen, as he said to her, If it comes to being safe, I fear your majesty would not be safe with me during a war, for I have a terrible repugnance for it. That will never do. I'm all for patching up if we can. This is unfortunate. <laughs> nice bloke. Makes him stay on, though. Britain has a great desire to punish uh, Russia across the country, so there's a lot of frustration when success doesn't follow. Inconclusive fighting at Sevastopol, and then huge losses in the charge of the Light Brigade at Balaclava. And also, for the first time, we've got immediate war reporting with photos and correspondence and reports in the press. Yeah, yeah. And there isn't censorship until right at the end of the war. So people are getting the full horror of the war and the awful conditions. Yeah, it's not all flashmen and... People living in, exactly. Um, So people aren't very happy about it. A motion passed for a select committee to inquire into the conduct of the war, and uh, Aberdeen resigned the next day. Right. As Gladstone said, the government had fallen with such a whack that they could hear their head hear their heads thump as they struck the ground. Poor bloke didn't even want it in the first place. He was uh, so he was pushed into this by. Well, he was pushed into it sort of by Palmerston and Russell, but also Palmerston. by but Russia also. You know, they've been quite aggressive in invading Turkey. Aberdeen didn't want it. Pushed into it by Russell and Palmerston and a bit of Russia. Yeah, and he would have resigned, but Victoria wanted him to stay on. He was in a um, no-win situation. He was in a no-win situation. Victoria writes saying, The Queen wishes to say what a pang it is for her to separate from so kind and dear and valued a friend as Lord Aberdeen has ever been to her since she has known him. The day he became Prime Minister was a very happy one for her, and throughout his ministry he has ever been the kindest and wisest adviser. And now she concludes with the expression of her warmest thanks for all his kindness and devotion, as well as of her unalterable friendship and esteem for him, and with every wish for his health and happiness. And meanwhile, Palmerston's sniggering in the background. Indeed. Um, later life, he, he retires after this, dies a few years later in 1860. Okay. Victoria, as a mark of respect, sends her own carriage up for the funeral. Oh, that's nice. However, Aberdeen's gone. Who could possibly take over? Oh, Lord Palmerston! This spells trouble. <laughs> oh, no. Henry John Temple, the third Viscount Palmerston, becomes Prime Minister in 1855. And Britain's knees quake. It's fair to say that Palmerston is a bit of a character. Mm. Born 1784, educated at Harrow, often got into fights and uh, stood up against bullies who apparently twice his size, and uh, shook William Pitt's hand in 1799 when he visited him in the House of Commons. Mm. Um, He was Secretary at War from 1809 to 29, so again, he was in government during the Napoleonic Wars. That's why he loves it. That's why he loves it. And he's then Foreign Secretary from 1830. Initially, Victoria quite liked him, because he's Foreign Secretary under Melbourne. 
Um, so he instructed her in the intricacies of foreign policy, how to address fellow sovereigns and end letters to them in her own hands. So in 1837, she said, at ten minutes past two came Lord Palmerston. We talked about Russia and Turkey a good deal. He is very agreeable and clear in what he says. So initially, she thinks, oh, seems right. This is after? This is in 1837, so this is right. Start okay. of her rank. Okay, right. Very vivacious, confident, handsome man. Walks into the rooms with a sort of a jaunty step. Mm-hmm. And uh, is very attractive to women. Earns the nickname of Lord Cupid <laughs> to all his dalliances. He's very proud of his virility. Kept a record of his successes and failures in a little pocket oh, diary. Oh, no, no. As late as 1863, he was cited as a co-respondent in a divorce case. He's only 79 really? years old. Really? <laughs> Almost certainly fabricated just for blackmail, but yeah. nevertheless, the fact that someone would think... Thinks it could stick, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Um, he married uh, the sister of Lord Melbourne, uh, a lady, Emily Lady Cowper, uh, in 1839, following the death of her husband. They were both in their 50s at the time. Victoria thought this was a little bit odd. He hadn't been married before? Uh, no, he was just oh. having lots of affairs. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and she wasn't sure about this, but he really loses the respect of Victorian Alberts when at Windsor one time he enters the bedroom of one of Victoria's ladies only to be screamed at and made to run out. Um, it was thought that probably from force of habit, he just sort of floundered in because he probably used to visit a different lady in that room. Yeah. And just from habit, he'd sort of strolled in and found it wasn't the right one. <laughs> this is probably what I'm after. No, all crumbs. But uh, Victoria and Albert, rather prim proper, weren't too impressed about this. And this was this was much later? So this, is when, this is when he was foreign secretary. <laughs> oh, right, OK. Um, so, but he very dominant as foreign secretary, 1830 to 34, 1835 to 41, and 1846 to 51. Mm. So he just, yeah. he is the foreign secretary for the first half of her reign. As she said, gunboat diplomacy, he'd use conspicuous displays of power, often naval, to achieve objectives. And um, under Russell, as we've seen, the, all this unilateral action supporting Garibaldi, Don Pacifico, it's all not too very good. John Bright um, wrote to Lord Roseby in 1886 when he was going to become Foreign Secretary. Do the exact opposite of what he did. <laughs> His administration at the Foreign Office was one long crime. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But he is adored by the public for his energy, for his patriotism, that Cuis Romanus some speech. Mm. They absolutely love it. A very good example of this is when uh, one time um, when you met a French um, embassyman, who Frenchmen tried to be complimentary, to Palmerston by saying, if I were not a Frenchman, I should wish to be an Englishman. To which Palmerston said, if I were not an Englishman, I should wish to be an Englishman. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> you see, that's how yeah, you fall under his spell. Oh, you see, God, damn you, charming man. <laughs> Aberdeen forced to resign, the war's going badly. There's only one. <laughs> Sorry, man. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Got to work that into conversation yeah. somehow. Yeah. Oh. Lord Dudley Stewart observed that wherever I go, I've heard but one opinion on the subject, and that one opinion has been pronounced in a single word or in a single name Palmerston. As Palmerston himself said, I am for the moment l'inevitable. <laughs> what an arrogant term, <laughs> so. Victoria, I was very reluctant mm. to appoint him. Besides all the experiences previously as Foreign Secretary when he yeah. took the world yeah. to the brink of destruction, he was over 70 years old, going deaf, short-sighted, dyed his hair, had false teeth, which would fall out <laughs> if he spoke too quickly. <laughs> but he's still full of vigour and he knows the army. He's the natural choice I mean, the to thought, take over when the war's yeah. going badly. But the thought of him 
it at, at the reins. At lot. And slightly deaf, he <laughs> can misunderstand things. Crikey Moses. The efficiency of the war doesn't really improve a hell of a lot, but the Tsar dies. And his son, Alexander Fear. II... Yes, well, exactly. His son, Alexander II, is much more minded towards peace. So, they go to peace. 1856, Congress of Paris. Palmerston's firm negotiating saw Russia concede territory to Turkey and relinquish the right to maintain a fleet in the back sea. Oh, right. Victoria is delighted. Mm. She writes to him, The Queen wishes to delay no longer the expression of her satisfaction as to the manner in which both the war has been brought to a conclusion and the honour and interest of this country have been maintained under the zealous and able guidance of Lord Palmerston. She wishes, as a public token of her approval, to bestow the Order of the Garter upon him. So, sir. So, yeah, she's... He's, she's been won over. So that was her, their Russians' whole thing, was to try and get more warm water ports and the Black Sea. Yeah. They didn't get that. What did they get? Did they get the Crimea itself? or No, they may have got some territories, but basically... Yeah, it's not great for Russia. So really. it was a kind of a victory. Kind of, but mm. there's no real conquest or sort of loft or anything. Yeah. Right, but okay. Palmerston and Victoria are pretty happy with it. Fair enough. Okay, she's happy. World's Crimea happy. dealt with. Um, we find someone else to fight with, and this time, China. Oh, no, I'm just, yeah, I'm reading something about this. Uh, it's a pirate ship called the Arrow, which had a British captain and a British flag, and it was intercepted by uh, China, and the Union Jack was brought down. Technically, the licence had expired, but nevertheless, the British consul had the Navy destroy the Chinese commissioner's palace. So, sorry, Palmerston's <laughs> taking on the Chinese now. This is the British consul. Right, OK. Initially. Chinese commissioner's not too happy, puts a bounty on English heads and has British factories burned. Palmerston kind of knows that the guy was in the wrong, but decides to support him anyway. Stops rubbing his fingers. And he faces a censure from the House of Commons and dissolves Parliament. So Palmerston said, fine, you don't like that, let's have an election. So, 1855, there's a general election. And it turns out that Palmerston is incredibly popular, <laughs> and most of those who oppose him, like Cobden and Bright, are defeated. Yeah. And ultimately have the Second Opium War against China. Yeah. As Lord Shaftesbury noted, his popularity is wonderful. Strange to say, the whole turns on his name. There seems to be no measures, no principle, no cry to influence men's minds and determine elections. It is simply, were you or were you not, are you or are you not, for Palmerston. That's like a, um access credit card advert. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> for Palmerston. Does you do or does you don't take access? <laughs> No? Oh, we started doing advertising I'll, on Retroactive. I'll, I'll, I'll post it with the YouTube <laughs> video. 1857, India is the country causing problems. We have the Indian mutiny. Oh, yeah. Rumours in India that Britain was planning to send war widows to marry Indian landholders to ensure their estates would be Christianised, and also that new rifle cartridges were going to be greased with pig fat, yeah. which of course deeply offensive uh, to Indians and their beliefs. In mere roots, in May 1857, a native regiment was refusing to handle the new cartridges because of these rumours, and so they were given ten years' imprisonment with hard labour. Ooh, bit strong. So the next day, there is the mutiny. British officers, wives, um, children and servants massacred, spread across the Ganges Valley, Delhi, nearby towns seized by Indian rebels. Causes outroar in mm. Britain. Huge shock. Victoria loves India, long-valued India as the jewel in the crown, and urges Palmerston to do something about it. She writes him saying, The Queen must repeat to Lord Palmerston that the measures hitherto taken by the government are not commensurate with the magnitude of the crisis. Mm. No trouble. The man in charge of dealing with this is Lord Canning. And everybody wants blood. 
But Canning tries to uh, minimise the harshness, for which he's given the rather derogatory name of Clemency Canning. Pretty good name. So he writes, There is a rabid and indiscriminate vindictiveness abroad, even among men who ought to set a better example, which it is impossible to contemplate without a feeling of shame for one's own countrymen. Not one man in ten seems to think that the hanging and shooting of 40,000 or 50,000 men can otherwise be practical, other, be otherwise than practicable and right. So he's trying to hold off the floods, but basically everybody just wants blood. Mm, they want yeah. vengeance. Fair to say that there is a lot of that, and there is a lot of bad violence against um, Indians, but nevertheless he tries to stop things. People call for him to be recalled, but Victoria supports his stance. Um, she says that thoughts of revenge were too horrible and really quite shameful. She owed kindness to the natives who helped Britain and said that they should know that there is no hatred to brown skin. None. But the greatest wish on the Queen's part is to see them happy, contented and flourishing. Oh, quite forward thinking about it. Very much so. So in 1858, Palmerston agrees to transferring East India Company authority to the Crown. That's late. Britain's going to take control. Also, religious toleration, respecting ancient customs, forgiveness of the rebels who didn't murder Europeans thought that all of these things very much pretty much worded by victorian albert wow wow setting the theme for this that's a good one for the um uh subjectivity subjectivity yeah. mm. ultimately however again palmerston is going to fall foul at some point mm. this time it's italy right uh, it's the orsini affair an italian republican tried to assassinate french emperor with a bomb which he'd made in britain and unusually palmerston was quite contrite about this when challenged by the Italians, and he advanced a bill making it a felony to plot in Britain to commit a murder abroad. How do they know it was made in Britain? Uh, I don't know, actually. It blew uh, up. Made it made in Britain. <laughs> yeah, it's the one... We tried to assassinate. Oh, work. OK. That's right, how they right. knew the bomb didn't go <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <so. laughs> now where this one came from. <laughs> uh, people didn't like it. Palmerton, Palmerton's defeated, and in February 1858, he resigns. Yay. I mean, oh, I'm conflicted. Mm. <laughs> Palmerston is gone, so a new man comes in. The Earl of Derby? Again! Edward Smith Stanley's back with his Conservatives. Who's he? was the second one, wasn't he? Um, so yes, the second time, Derby. So he was the one that had that who's who. Who, who, who. Oh, who, who one. Right, without yeah. any support. Oh, okay. He tries to get a bit more support this time, invites Gladstone to join the administration. Gladstone didn't have a lot of time for Palmerston, so he thought he might have tempted him to mm. come over with them, because Gladstone had been a Peelite before, like Derby. Yeah. There was even a thought that Palmerston might then have thrown in his lot and thought, well, might as well, this is where it's going. Yeah. <laughs> no real principles. Um, but they both... Well, Gladstone declined. They didn't ask Palmerston. So it was just as limited a minority administration as didn't before. Learn. Well, they, they didn't have any support, so, mm. you know... Um, it was actually Derby's government that passed the Government of India Act in 1858. So this is when it actually happens that Britain, the Crown, now controls India, not the East India Company. But, I mean, it was before the army was there, weren't they? they had yes, British although Garrison there was still there. East India Company had right. a lot of control of these sorts of things. But now it's all Britain. Wanted to show the Conservatives the positive party of government. Disraeli's budget in 1858 tried to revive Gladstone's 1853 success. They supported a bill to abolish the property qualification for MPs and another one to allow practising Jews to sit in the House of Commons. Oh, that's really good. Um, but in 1859, Derby introduced the Parliamentary Reform Bill, so a successor to 1832. And Derby right. thought it was all very moderate, mm. uh, but it got defeated. And they went to a general election, mm. and despite some Conservative gains, they lost the election. Oh. 
He's uh, so each time he's only been in less than a year. Every time let's record, <laughs> lost it. Lord Palmerston again. He is back. Can't keep a good man down. Eighteen fifty-nine. Only a year after you went, he's back again. Yeah. Now. Problems that we've had in the 1850s, as we said, we had the P-Lights, we had this very disparate party structure, it's all a bit confused. And we've got the conflict between Russell and Palmerston. Yeah. And in fact, quite a few other people in Palmerston. Yeah. So, 1859, at the Willis's Rooms in London, Palmerston calls a meeting of all the various factions, about 270 people present. They discuss getting rid of Derby, but they all just discuss how they're going to govern as themselves. Russell stands up, speaks of his willingness to serve under Palmerston, the necessity of all the different sections, the radicals, the Whigs, the Liberals, all being together. Bright admits some fault in the past divisions, gives his support. They form a government, and this is largely seen as being the sort of a proper foundation of the Liberal Party. Oh, right. So it's now a much more clearer collective group, the Liberals. So the way that whole murky, Peelite, Tory, Whig thing was sold was mm. by forming a third party. Well, it's, I mean, there were sort of liberals, there were radicals, there were Whigs, but now we've got all them, they're all collective now. So now we've got a liberal... And a conservative. And a conservative, We'd, and the Whigs haven't yet turned into... The Whig, Whigs are part of are the part liberals. Of right. Okay. So, so Palmerston is effectively the first liberal prime minister. Right. Right. Mm. Okay. So. Goodbye, Whigs. Foreign affairs. Mm. Of course. 1860, France intervened in Italy, so Palmerston supported huge refortifications of naval bases because there was a fear that Napoleon III might try and emulate his mm. uncle and invade. America, there's a civil war. Oh, yes. As we discussed before, although Britain was opposed to the slave trade, they saw an opportunity to weaken America and support the Southern Confederacy, who were better trade partners for Britain, mm-hmm. and um, a chance to split America in two. There yeah. was a genuine sense that there could be two nations. That might emerge. So we had the Trent Crisis in 1861, where a US warship boarded a British merchant ship, removed two Southern Confederate envoys, and when Britain demanded they be released, Lincoln refused. Palmerston thought war was almost inevitable. <laughs> I bet he did. Lord John Russell, who was Foreign Secretary, had drafted a very bellicose letter, which would almost certainly have left them nowhere to go but to declare war. And it was only Albert on his deathbed who'd gone out of bed rewrote oh, it. Oh, I remember this, yeah. Much more diplomatic that averted war. This is quite a dark period in our history. Mm. Yeah. And also we have Schleswig-Holstein. Oh, the Germans going to be Bismarck, um, who's German chancellor who become United Germany, he wants to annex some Danish territories. Palmerston didn't want to go to war. Incredibly. What? No, no, I don't believe you. Unless, unless Danish independence was threatened, mainly because the German had an army of about 300,000 men. Compared to our small army, big navy. Job. Yeah. yeah. So unless it was absolutely necessary, you didn't really want to get involved. Um, Conservatives weren't too happy, tabled a motion of censure for Palmerston not doing enough about it. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> Pretty opportunistic, yeah. really. But Victoria was behind him again. The Queen has declared that she will not sanction the infliction upon her subjects of all the horrors of war for the purposes of becoming a partisan in a quarrel in which both parties are much in the wrong. The motion was defeated. Palmerston was successful. At 2.30 in the morning, the result came through. Really? And uh, when he heard about it, Palmerston ran upstairs to kiss his wife. <laughs> his wife? His wife, yes. He had one at this point, right. Uh, which the Israeli noted, What plucked to mount those dreadful stairs at three o'clock in the morning? With his big false teeth. <laughs> it's 80 years of age. <laughs> um, and it's very complex, though, Schleswig-Holstein. Famously, Palmerston said that only three people understood it. 
Albert, who was dead, a German professor who had gone insane, and himself, who'd forgotten it. <laughs> I've, I've vaguely heard that. Who mm. said that again? Palmerston. Palmerston. Yeah. Um, a couple of domestic reforms. Um, Offences Against the Person Act in 1861 codified and reformed the law, um, which is still apparently the basis of the ban on abortion in Ireland. Oh, right. Most notably for Victoria, Albert dies in 1861. Oh, uh-oh. Palmerston actually come to quite admire Albert. He said, I had no idea that he possessed such eminent qualities. He thought him an extraordinary man, and Victoria was very fortunate to have married him. And if we recall, when, when he was dying, Palmerston had said that, not publicly, said that Victoria would be less of a national loss. Oh, that was... We, we heard that last time. Mm, that's what Palmerston yeah. said. Um, so Victoria, when she first meets him uh, the next year, after lunch, luncheon, I saw Lord Palmerston. It made me very nervous seeing him for the first time since my great misfortune, but I felt it was right not to put it off any longer. He could, in fact, hardly speak for emotion. It showed me how much he felt my terrible loss, and he said what a dreadful calamity it was. I would hardly have given to him credit for entering so entirely into my anxieties. So, but she doesn't know that basically she's thinking, he should, she, you should have gone should have been you. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she's uh, got a bit more of a rapprochement. Yeah. Palmerston now. <clears throat> Someone that Palmerston doesn't have quite such a good relationship with is Gladstone. Okay. Glasson's his chancellor, and increasingly radical. He's now he's now a prominent figure then. Oh, very much, very prominent. Since that sort of 1853 budget, he's mm. he's, you know, the, he's the chancellor. When there was that French invasion scare, and Palmerston was building all the naval fortifications, Gladstone threatened to resign. Uh, but Palmerston said that he had so many resignation letters from Gladstone they could set fire to the chimney. <laughs> Gladstone got increasingly excitable. So um, when they come back to cabinet after a recess. Apparently they'd sit down and Gladstone would just be firing off and spewing all these reforms they had to do and wagging his fingers and we've got to do this and we've got to do something about this and I've got this plan for this. And Palmerston would probably just sit there saying absolutely nothing, looking fixedly at his papers, and then as soon as Gladstone had finished, he would just look up and say, now, my lords and gentlemen, let's go to business. <laughs> completely <laughs> oh, ignore him. Cutting. Carry on. But he actually said, Palmerston, Gladstone will soon have it all his own way and whenever he gets my place, we shall have strange doings. And indeed, Palmerston predicted that Gladstone would wreck the party and end up in a madhouse. Did we find out? Whether Palmerston with Gladstone <laughs> yeah. will... We'll come to Gladstone. Okay. He'll come back. But time catches up mm. with Lord Palmerston. 1865, he wins another election, but he doesn't live to uh, resume office. How old was he? Oh, he's, he's 80. Something Good grief. Caught a fever, continued to work rather than resting. It's what they did in the Victorian period. They it's literally their, dropped dead at the desk. It's like their sport. Much. This was their relaxation. Exactly. And uh, ultimately develops into pneumonia and he dies. He has very famous last words attributed to him, which oh. almost certainly not true. Oh. But he is the one who is yeah. attributed for saying, Die, my dear doctor. That's the last thing I shall do. <laughs> <laughs> He's a witch. <laughs> Possibly he may also have said, that's Article 98, now go on to the next. Because he was still scribbling his papers. <laughs> I kind of think that one's true. Yeah, it? both good. Victoria reflected on it and said, Strange and solemn to think of that strong, determined man with so much worldly ambition gone. He had often worried and distressed us, though as Prime Minister he had behaved very well. To think that he is removed from this world... And I alone, without dearest oh, Albert to no. talk and consult with. Oh. She then writes to uh, her uncle Leopold. 
Um, it is very striking, and it is another link with the past, the happy past, which is gone. And in many ways, he is a great loss. He had many valuable qualities. There are many bad ones. And we had, God knows, terrible trouble with him about foreign affairs. Still, as Prime Minister, he managed affairs at home well and behaved to me well. But I never liked him, or could ever the least respect him. He was very vindictive, and personal feelings influenced his political acts too much. Still, he is a loss. She is a crashing bore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to give much away, but seriously. Florence Nightingale was much uh, sadder. Um, when he went. Florence Nightingale, famous as the nurse. Well, she, he drummed up her war. business. Well, indeed, nurse in the Crimean War and lots of reforms, also peer, uh, spearheaded pie charts. Yeah. People just remember as the lady in the lamp. Indeed. With the lamp. And she wrote, He will be a great loss to us. Though he made a joke when asked to do the right thing, he always did it. No one else will be able to carry things through the cabinet as he did. I shall lose a powerful protector. He was so much more in earnest than he appeared, he did not do himself justice. Well, I think he tried. But he does get a certain amount of credit. He becomes the fourth non-royal to be given a state funeral. Really? Who mm-hmm. are the others? Nelson? Uh, Wellington. Wellington. And Newton. Newton. Mm-hmm. Wow. Ah, what a steam company. Indeed. So, that is the end of Lord Palmerston. And this is the point at which we're going to take a pause. Because we're roughly-ish halfway through, mm. and it's going to be very hard to try and cut this down if we have twice as much as this yeah. into the episode. Oh, yes. So we're going to stop here, carry on recording a few moments, the new episode, but from your perspective listening, this is the end of Victoria's Prime Minister's Part 1. I liked... Palmerston. <laughs> Palmerston, yeah. You can't help yourself. I can't just... help myself. I mean, yeah. It was fun. It was fun, yeah. Uh, I think Peel was probably the most uh, respectable in terms of just a businessman doing good things for the country. Yeah, who before him? Melbourne before him, mm. sitting about mm, chatting. Yeah, yeah, Melbourne, Palmerston. Mm. So, will there be anyone to beat them in part two? We will see you next time. Cheerio. Bye bye. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details.